All right, this morning I've got a question for you. How many of you love authority? For decades, uh, probably centuries, it's been the battle between teens and their parents. Why? Because teens don't like authority. Teens do not like to be told what to do. But if you're a preteen or teen listening today, don't worry. Neither do your parents. As we get older, we still don't like authority. We don't like corporate coming up with some policy that we have to follow that they don't even understand what we're going through. We don't like the authority of politicians who make rules that then we have to follow. We don't like police officers enforcing those rules. Back up. We love police officers enforcing the law on others, but when it comes to us, can't you just let us slide? Just this one time? We don't like authority. All of us want to be able to do what we want to do. We don't like it when people say what's right and what's wrong and tell us how to live. And so that leads me to this question today, and it's the question that we're going to focus on. What kind of authority does God's word have in your life? It's a question that Jesus addresses today as we look at Luke chapter 20. It's the final parable that we're looking at today in this series, and it may just be the last parable that Jesus ever told before he died. It's definitely the last parable in the Gospel of Luke, but it may be Jesus' last one overall. Jesus tells this parable on Tuesday of Holy Week, so three days from then he's going to die on the cross. And Tuesday, he's preaching and teaching in the temple. He's preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Uh, when the Pharisees come up and they say, Jesus, tell us, by what authority are you preaching and teaching? In other words, who gave you the right to teach and preach? And Jesus says, okay, I'll answer your question, but first answer me this one. John the Baptist his baptism, was it from heaven or from men? This put them in a really tight spot because if they said from, he if they said from men, the people would riot because people, the people saw John the Baptist as a prophet from God. But if they said it was from heaven, then do you know what they have to admit? They have to admit that John's baptism was legit and at Jesus' baptism, when John baptized him, the heavens opened up and a voice from heaven, God's voice spoke from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And so if they said it was from heaven, there they have their answer. The authority that Jesus has is from God himself because he spoke at John's baptism when John baptized him. So Jesus says, here's your options. Option A, from heaven. Option B, from men. And they said, we choose option C. We don't know. And Jesus says, okay, now let me tell you a story. He went on to tell the, the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Stop right there. That's just details to us, right? All right, Jesus sent the scene, a man 
planted a vineyard, and then he went away for a long time. But it wasn't just details to the people. If you remember earlier in our uh, worship service here, we read Isaiah chapter 5. And in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, God says, the vineyard, the vineyard of the Lord is the people of Judah, is Israel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books were, were the most beloved books by the Jewish people. But Isaiah was a close six. They knew that book forward and backwards. And so they knew when Jesus said, a man planted a vineyard, everyone said, stop. This is going to be a good one. Jesus is talking about us. They recognize that. Their ears perked up. They're ready to listen. But then Jesus told them this story. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This story is almost unbelievable, isn't it? I guess it is a story, so. But it's almost hard to imagine that any human being, any owner, would actually act this way. The owner was not unjust. He wasn't unfair. He wasn't demanding. He planted a vineyard and handed it over to the farmers to work. And he gave them ample time for a harvest to happen. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to just collect some of the fruit. Not even all of it. Just some of the fruit. And instead, what did they do? They beat the servant and threw him out. And so the owner sends another servant. They beat him and throw him out. Now at this point, if it's you and me, that phrase, that, that saying would come to mind. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Now I'm going to take matters in my own hands. But no, in the story, he sends a third servant and they treat him shamefully and beat him and send him away. And then the really outrageous part of this whole story the owner sends his one and only son. Would you ever send your son to people who treated your servants that way? Absolutely not. But the owner did. And they dragged him outside and they killed him. Now the people knew exactly what Jesus meant. They knew that Jesus was referring to the vineyard as them They knew that the servants were God's prophets. They knew that the the farmers were the Jewish people and specifically the Jewish church leaders. And they knew that Jesus was claiming to be God's son. And here's how the people responded. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, 
Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Jesus looked them directly in the eye. Directly in the eye, and they said, and he said, Here's what you're doing. You are killing God's son. He he calls out the Pharisees, and they knew it. They knew it. He knew exactly what they were going to do, and he looked them directly in the eye and said, You're you're rejecting the stone of God. You're rejecting God's son. And instead of listening to God's word, instead of letting the authority of God's word take precedent in their life, they chose to reject Jesus. Why? Because ultimately they wanted the control. Ultimately they wanted the say. Ultimately they wanted to interpret God's word the way they wanted to interpret God's word. They didn't want to listen to God. Now, We could sit here and point our fingers at the Pharisees and say, how in the world could you ever do this? But first, let's apply it to the 21st century. Just like when you read any section of Scripture, you say, here's the truth of God's Word. How does it apply today? And I've got two points for you this morning. Number one, before we go and point our fingers at the Pharisees, we have to realize that we have abused the authority of God's Word too. Think of the grace that God has shown us living in the 21st century. Unlike the Pharisees, we have the completed New Testament. We have the, uh, the whole Bible at, the fi- at our fingertips. We know that Jesus' perfect life, his innocent death and his resurrection, has granted you and me forgiveness of sins. Heaven is open to us. We know that we are in a good relationship with God. We have it all right here. All of you can load it up on your phone. Anywhere you are. We have it at our disposal. We have that complete salvation right here. And God continues to send his word to you and me. He continues to send it. And pastors and teachers and friends, Christian friends, Christians who bring God's word, he brings that, he sends that message of law and gospel, sin and grace, in hopes that it produces in us sorrow over sin and faith in Jesus as our Savior. Let me say that again. God sends his word, his message of law and gospel, sin and grace, in hopes that it produces in you and me sorrow over sin and faith in Jesus as our Savior. And that from that, we produce fruits of faith. And that looks like joyous worship, humble obedience, humble submission to his word, joyful in all things, patient, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's what God wants to see in our lives as this message takes root in our hearts. And yet, do you know what we've done in the 21st century to God's word. We have 
the Bible. We have God's authority right here, the authoritative uh, word of God, and yet people today look at it and they completely abuse it. They say the first 11 chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11, is so outrageous that it can't possibly be true. That God created everything in six days by speaking it? Yeah, right. That some great flood went over all of the world and you expect me to believe that? Yeah, right. It's fairy tale. They take Luke chapter 2. The Christmas story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. The the Christmas story that we love and it's near and dear to our hearts and they say it belongs on the shelf with old Saint Nick because there's no way that God would come to us like that. They take words like sin and purge it from the Bible. They look at God's word and and look at the different uh, areas of our lives that it confronts and they say that was just a cultural thing. It doesn't apply today. They look and, we, and they say, yeah, that's how they felt back then, but we've evolved as a species. They look at God's word, where Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, and they say that is too outrageous of a statement. There's got to be more ways to heaven. And they've abused the authority of God's word. Do you know who the they are? It's not outside the Christian church. It's some of the seminaries in the Christian church teaching future pastors to view God's word this way and then go in to teach people God's word in this way as a mere suggestion. And before we point our fingers at them and the Pharisees, how often don't you and I do that? We love God's word. We love the authority of God's word until we're surrounded by a group of people that don't believe that Jesus is a savior and that there's many ways to heaven. And then all of a sudden it's, well, this is true for me, but it might not be true for you. We love the authority of God's word until it comes and it says to you, you can't love your money the way that you do. We love the authority of God's word until it says, you can't gossip the way you do. You can't uh, talk the way you do. We love the authority of God's word until it says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Wait, you mean God wants me to go to church? Well. We love the authority of God's word until it says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you should rest. Wait, I, I'm supposed to rest on the, on the Sabbath? We love the authority of God's word until it says, honor your father and mother and those in authority including the government. And so as long as the government doesn't ask us to do something that is, a God, or that is against God's word, God wants us to honor the government, whether we agree or not. And now all of a sudden, how do we view God's word? As authority or a mere suggestion? You see, we have abused God's word too. We have abused God's word and we have tossed it aside just like the Pharisees. And do you know what we do in that moment? It's as if we take Jesus outside of the vineyard and crucify him. Because God sends his message again and again and we just keep abusing it. As we don't look at it as authority. 
You see, what this parable really reveals about us is the rebellion that is in our hearts against authority and against God's word as authority in our lives. But it also reveals something else. And it's this. This parable reveals that God's reckless love sent his son. It's the most audacious thing about this whole story. The farmer sends his son after he sends multiple servants and they beat those servants. And then the owner would send his son to them. It's the most outrageous, most reckless thing about this whole parable, and yet that's exactly what God has done for you and me. In three days from when Jesus told this story, the Pharisees would, and, and the Jewish people would riot in Jerusalem. They would cause an uprising, and Pontius Pilate would cave in and allow Jesus to be dragged outside of the city gates and crucified. Killed outside the vineyard. God, in his reckless love, sent his son for you and me. But why? As we dig into the why here and to what's going on, we see that God's love is even more reckless than just sending his son to a bunch of people that killed him. And so let's dig in, because as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he claims to be God's son, they know that he's claiming to be God's son. What's going off in their mind? The Old Testament. And what's the punishment for somebody who blasphemes, claiming to be God's son? A blasphemer's punishment was death. It was capital punishment. Now, the majority of the time for capital punishment in the Jewish uh, Old Testament nation, the, the punishment was stony. You get a, put him in a pit and you throw stones at him until he dies. Absolutely harsh uh, way of going about it. But God made a special, uh, not request, a special way of doing it one time in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Here's what he says. If someone guilty of a capital offense, blaspheming, is to be put to death and their body exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. The Jewish people looked at Jesus and they say, you are cursed by God. You are blaspheming. You deserve to die. The capital punishment is crucifixion. And as he's on the cross, they're looking at him outside the city wall saying, you are cursed by God. But was he? Jesus wasn't blaspheming, right? Jesus is God's son. He never sinned. Was he really cursed by God? Here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Jesus 
You're absolutely right. Jesus wasn't a blasphemer. He was God's son. And yet, you want to know the reckless love of God? God didn't just send his son to be killed by a bunch of people. God sent his one and only son to become the curse for us. All the rebellion that we've committed in our lives against God, all of the sins that we have done, all of the lawlessness that we have enacted in our lives, Jesus took responsibility for it it all. He took our sin on himself and he became the curse for us. So yes, you want to see the reckless love of God? He not just sent Jesus, his only son, to us, but then he credited Jesus with all the sins that you and I have ever committed. With the rebellion of abusing his word, he made Jesus take responsibility for it. And Jesus willfully did it. This is the reckless love of God. And the people dragged him out of the city gate and crucified him on the cross where he took our place, where he became the curse for us. And now we get to do this according to Hebrews chapter 13. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. You want to talk about unbelievable love. Jesus was dragged outside the vineyard, outside the city gate, and crucified, and through his shed blood, we've been made holy. All your rebellion taken away because Jesus became the curse for us. This is the reckless love that God has for you. And in his reckless love, he continues to send his word to confront you of your sin so that he can tell you this gracious message that your sins are forgiven because he sent his one and only son. This is the message that continues to come to us again and again. And when we hear this message, when we dig into the reckless love that God has for us, we can't help but to say, God, take the lead. With a loving God like this, with a God who loves me this much, of course I want to humbly submit to your word. Of course I want your word to be the authority in my life. Because if you love me that much that you're going to allow your son to become the curse for me, you must want what's best for my life. And God will continue to patiently send his word of law and gospel, sin and grace, so that sorrow over sin may happen and faith in Jesus as our Savior established and rooted so that from that, from that seed, will produce fruits of faith. And that's what Jesus encourages his people at the end. Jesus, he says, I am the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of the church. Jesus is that cornerstone. And so let's fall on him. Let's be broken to pieces. Let our pride, our arrogance, let the area of control that we don't want God to have a say, let's give that up and be broken to pieces because Jesus will build us, mold us, shape us so that we fit and hold together 
by that cornerstone. And then we have the inheritance. May this reckless love of God strengthen you and give you the humility that you and I both need so that God's word may have the authority in our life in all things. And so let's pray, asking God's blessings on this. Let's pray, asking that God give us the humility to receive his word as the authority. And may God bless your week. Heavenly Father, what an unbelievable blessing it is to have your word. It's the authority in our lives. Uh, It is the truth. And we thank you that you have graciously given it to us. As we hear that message of law and gospel, sin and grace, give us humility to receive it. Stir in us the sorrow over sin. And then build in us trust and faith that Jesus is our Savior from the rebellion because he became the curse for us. What unbelievable, unbelievable reckless love that you have for us that you would send him to take our place and become the curse for us. We thank you for forgiving our rebellion and now give us the humility, the submission uh, to receive your word as the authority in our lives. May our lives conform to it so we may produce fruits of faith and joyful thanksgiving for everything that you have done for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. It's in his name that we join to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For your kingdom, your power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. In Numbers chapter 6, God instructed Aaron the high priest that as the people were left the, the, uh, the temple, he was to raise his hand and bless the people with the Lord's name so they knew the Lord was going with them. We're going to end our service the same way today so you know the Lord's going with you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. Amen.